What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Inside the Labyrinth podcast. We're now on season five, episode one. This episode is sponsored by No Matter What Apparel and Ballast Supplements. Both of these companies are owned by first responders, so let's give back to first responders that give back to us. Visit www.nomatterwhatapparel.com and use the code in all caps INSIDE THE LAB for 10% off your total purchase. That's INSIDE THE LAB. Visit www.valorsupplements.net. Use the code RFR10 in cap for 10% off your total purchase. In this episode, I had the honor to speak with Dr. Kevin Gilmartin. He's a retired officer and a hostage negotiator. He also is the author of Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, a guide for their families and for officers. All I want to say is I can't say anything because I've really looked up to this man for a long time for the past two years, and it was an honor to speak with him. Joseph, who's also part of Rush Responders, an addiction trauma specialist, and is also a professor at Fordham University, was also in this episode. There's a lot of knowledge, a lot of life experience in this episode. I really hope you guys enjoy this one because it meant a lot to me and it has helped me out, so I know it can really help you guys out. So please sit back, get your pen and paper ready, and take notes because you're going to learn something today. Thank you. And we're live. Welcome back to season five, episode one of Inside the Labyrinth podcast. Uh, I'm super excited for today. Um, I've been preaching uh, this man's book for about two years now. Um, Santa came early for me and for all the listeners. I'm very excited to, uh, you know, dive into his labyrinth and his mind and really hear his journey. Um, But before we introduce the guest, uh, Jay wasn't able to make it with us, so I have another co-host today and part of Rush for Responders team member, Joseph. Joseph, what's going on? If you want to introduce yourself. Uh, what's going on is I'm really glad to be here um, with our guest. Uh, I'm Joseph Lanzoni. I am an addiction and trauma specialist in private practice in Nyack, New York. Um, I also uh, am an adjunct at Fordham University Graduate School of Social Service uh, at Lincoln Center and Westchester. Uh, And I've been a volunteer for reps from day one. And it has been a very, very wonderful um, journey uh, being part of uh, what what I see as a movement to give compassion to people who very often uh, really, uh, you know, are just um, thought of as, you know, someone you call if you're in trouble. Uh, I, I, I've part of part of reps that I've, has impressed me the most is that, you know, we we really we really give ourselves permission to care uh, and give first responders permission to feel. Uh, so uh, I'm very happy to uh, be on on uh, on the screen with Dr. Gilmartin today. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate that. And You're welcome for for all the new listeners. I even I am an active police officer in New York. Um, I am also an alcoholic, but I'm more than just an alcoholic. So uh, as you guys listen to the podcast, you guys kind of know my story and where I stand. And without further ado. I will introduce to you the man and the author of the book, Emotional Survival for Law Enforcement, a guide for officers and their families. I uh, did 20 years over in Tuscan, Arizona, um, part of the no- negotiations team as well. Uh, very 
very honored, as Joe said, uh, in our Sunday night meetings, our responder talk meetings, we've read out of the book multiple times and had a full topic discussion on it. So uh, Dr. Gil Martin, introduce you to the podcast and the show and uh, how are you doing today and uh, how, how are your feet right now, where you are? Well, I'm in Tucson, Arizona. Things are going real well, Frank. Thank you for, for providing me the chance to speak with you this morning. Oh, of course. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. So um, we're going to jump right into your labyrinth, Dr. Gil Martin, and we want to see how Dr. Gil Martin was, um, you know, in kind of high school, middle school, where'd you grow <laughs> up and how was, uh, were you a fan of high school? Did you play any sports? And how was that experience as a young Dr. Gil Martin for you? Well, you know, it's funny because I'm hearing these New York accents today and uh, <laughs> it brings me back to my childhood because uh, I'm a New York City native. Um, I was born in the Bronx and spent the first couple of years of my life in the Bronx. And um, from there, we moved to the wilds of Arizona, which okay. in, in those years was very different than the Arizona of today. But um when I think back on high school and I think back on adolescence, I, I, I would have described myself as a fairly rebellious uh, adolescent. Um, I dropped out of high school, joined the Marine Corps, and um, I think those were shaping influences. Uh, but I was always interested in human behavior. I was interested in why, what made people tick. And I think that drew me um, into, into psychology and into law enforcement. And I, I think part of that was uh, it, just the experiences I had in my own life. I'm, I'm a baby boomer. I'm an older baby boomer. And so my parents' generation were the ones that went off and fought the Second World War. And we, um, we had a pretty significant number of World War II veterans in our family. And I noticed that um, I didn't know why it was happening, but in my childhood, I noticed they were dying. They were dying uh, as very young men. Um, we had my uncle lived with us. Was a New York City police officer. Was uh, on some of the one of the first emergency response teams personnel, and uh, he died at, at 34, and my father died at 44. And I was thinking, they were healthy men, but the experiences of the wartime trauma impacted their health. Because uh, when we th we think of post-traumatic stress disorder, I think we tend to think in psychological terms. And the more years that I've, I've gone and looked at this, both in, in law enforcement directly and then as a psychologist, I'm really aware of the basic error that we're making in the United States in terms of providing services, psychological mental health services to first responders. We're stuck in the silo of only psychological concepts. And we have totally ignored the biological and physiological concepts dealing with mental health. Now, there are groups that are springing up around, around the country, but they're peer driven. And they're just, they just start because there's someone who has a vision and is motivated. And those people tend to be in their particular uh, geographic location. And they'll start looking at well, what happens if we get everybody in the gym? What happens if we start a CrossFit group? What, what happens if we start a, uh, a running group here at the police department or at the fire department? And they're, they're all discovering this independently. And the one thing that they're discovering is people's mental health improves. Their socialization improves. People get better 
their their uh, drive towards inappropriate behavior, towards addictions, towards family disruptions, reduces. They 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 their life works better. But the, this stuff was happening, and there really wasn't a science to go along with it. it and and if you you went for mental health services. That meant you pr pretty much walked into a room and talked to somebody like, you know, Kevin Gilmartin or Frank, I'm sorry, or Joe, and you, there was the, the counselor, the social worker, or the, the clergy, all very, very, very necessary uh, parts of dealing with trauma and dealing with the quality of life. But you very rarely went to the, to the gym and talked to the coach. Uh, it, it, it didn't exist. Then all of a sudden, some research started popping up by scientists, empirical research that started saying that uh, some of it started with, with Duke University, where they were treat, teach, treating people for depression. And they put the people with depression, you're probably aware of this classic study, and they put them into three groups. One group received antidepressant medication. The second group received antidepressant medication and counseling. And the third group had four episodes of moderate exercise per week. In the months that followed up, all groups were treated equally successfully. So the finding that exercise was as therapeutic for the reduction of depression as were the traditional modalities. But we're still ignoring this. We're, we, we take men and women in law enforcement and the fire service also, and we get them into just great shape at the police academy. Then we cut them loose, then they go out and they deal with society's problems. And from day one, they're exposed to trauma, they're exposed to anger, they're exposed to all these emotionally charged situations that most people never have to deal with. And yet the system just ignores the biological, physiological components to that. We wait until that police officer starts having addiction problems, starts having depression issues, and tragically even has successful and, and attempted suicides. Then we step back, we say, geez, I wonder why this happened. And for many years, the leadership in law enforcement would step back and say, well, we have to do a better job of pre-employment psychological evaluation. Well, the realities are, the field of American law enforcement does wonderful jobs of pre-employment psychological assessments. For the most part, they're putting very grounded, mentally healthy men and women into an unhealthy situation. Every day, a police officer goes into a situation that's not normal because you don't dial 911 because something normal is taking place. So these men and women go into this elevated state it's a biological state where they have to handle the demands of the call loads. Then we just abandon them. We do nothing to provide services or to explain what the problem is. And we're left with the situation we are in today. And that's that we have increasing suicide rates. At the same time, we're having increasing psychological services. So maybe we need to stop using a silo effect for treating locking in our, our one little one little tunnel and we need to broaden the tent a little bit and understand that police officers need to exercise and they need to have it mandatory to exercise not just for physical health but for their decision making and their judgment in the field and those are essential components a police officer cannot do their job 
They cannot make the quick decisions they have to if they ignore the biology of, of stress. Amen. Beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, because I, I think, um, so I just pulled up um, the blue uh, bluehelp.org doctor. I don't know if you ever heard of that website. I've heard um, of it. I'm, yeah. I'm not so last year, 2019, they had 228 police suicides, right? Countrywide. And it actually, over the past few months, it's slowly been jumping up still from 2019 because I don't know if they were unreported or they were just doing a case on it. So now there's 239. And for this year of 2020, we're at 162, which is still enormous, very large. You know, it's lower than the, the 239 it's saying here. But um, unfortunately, I don't think for this year we're at a, a rock bottom of um, everyone really sitting down and um, going from um, going from COVID to the George Floyd protest to the election detail protest to all this stuff. And people are, I've heard, oh, that's my phone. One second. Okay. I've heard a lot of, I've heard a lot of, you know, more alcoholic related instant, um, instance on the job happening. Well, you know, I, I'm an old guy and I've been around a long time. And I've seen police function in various episodes of crises from the Vietnam War protests all, all the way through to today. And I'm not sure police have ever been under the stress that they are today. The, the levels of demand on police, the, the, um, the, the political, using police as political uh, targets has never occurred like it has today. The whole issue of defund the police and the rhetoric that comes on puts tremendous demands on the men and women of law enforcement. Yet we're, we're missing, we're, we're totally missing the boat. You know, when, when we, we talk about suicides, that's just the tip of the iceberg. How, how often do we talk about lost families? Do we talk about uh, heart disease, diabetes, uh, stroke, uh, uh, premature death syndromes? And, and, you know, and as I, I think of premature death syndromes, I, I think of the, uh, as I mentioned, the, the deaths that, that were in uh, my family of World War II veterans, young men who went off and did their service and came home and never got to, to, to live their life to its capacity because of the exposure that they had in the Pacific, uh, in, the, in North Africa, in, in protracted combat situations. Well, I see that same event in, in law enforcement. I, I think at a personal level, I look at the men and women I went to the police academy with and um, I, I watched their life's journey. And, and that started solidifying my thinking But in this area. But one of the things that I, I think is that we have to do is we have to explain to police officers what is biologically happening to them and and that's what we attempted to do in the book we wanted police officers to understand that we have to get in front of trauma exposure if you're a good police officer and i, I can't speak for firefighters I mean, they have the same phenomena but i i don't have any first-hand experience uh, i was, was going to say dr gilmartin that there i've read into them that their number one causes of deaths is heart attack cancer and suicide because of that hypervigilance of sleeping during the night, waking up, getting the adrenaline, going, 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 and they 
they are almost the same life expectancy as police officers. And and, and the, the the firefighter has all of the toxin exposure also that were the inhalation and, and the exposure to to chemicals. But the the um, during during as I'm studying this over the years, I've come into contact with some people that are outliers. The group, for example, in Reno, Nevada, the uh, retired police chief and retired fire chief in Reno, Nevada, met with a, a medical group and they wanted to know why are we having heart disease in our 30-year-old police officers? And one of the things that they came up with was the exposure to elevated alertness for protracted periods of time. Now, if you think about a police officer, the, the first thing a police officer has to learn is how to be safe. How, do, how are you safe? Well, you, you're safe because you practice good officer safety. Good officer safety means you walk around with your head on a swivel. You walk around in an elevated level of alertness. You're terribly observant of your environment around you. But what's happening when that occurs is your brain is going into an elevated level of adrenal cortical stimulation. The sympathetic branch of your autonomic nervous system is engaged. Your reflexes are enhanced, your peripheral vision's enhanced. You're making very quick decisions because you have to, to stay alive. You're having to look at everything also, not, with, not just with this elevated level of alertness, you have to view the world through a filter of distrust. See, trust is not a friend of a police officer. If a police officer walks up to a car and trusts there's not a gun in the car, that's a formula for disaster. The police officer has to walk up on the car and be ready for the worst case scenario in every situation. So that means we have two very critical events taking place in our police officers' lives. Their brain is in an elevated level of alertness and they're seeing everything through a filter of distrust. Those two events will keep the cop alive tactically, but it starts a disease process that begins killing the police officer. Because when that cop is in that elevated level of adrenal cortical alertness, the, the adrenaline's causing cortisol to hit the liver. The liver releases blood glucose, blood sugar. That blood glucose is the feeling of fuel that the police officer has when they're out in the field doing their job. That's that energy that they have. Well, while they're doing that, the pancreas is kicking out insulin. Insulin grabs a proportion of this blood glucose and it takes it out of the metabolic process. It holds it back in reserve and it begins infusing that glucose into the fat cells around the abdominal area. So and it's, it's, they, it's holding that glucose there in reserve in case the stress continues. It's like when you go to work, your weapon is loaded, but you're also carrying additional rounds. You have you have extra magazines in case you're in a firefight and, and, and you need those resources. Well, the body does the same thing to survive. It stores fat cells with glucose in order to deal with a protracted stress. It's classic with police officers that when they get on the job, within the first couple of years, they gain weight. And everybody jokes about this as if it's something funny. They, oh gosh, he's eating donuts. Uh, this is funny. It's it's an it's an it's a, it's a syndrome. It's the beginning of a metabolic syndrome in that police officer. It's the stress response. Glucose gets infused into the fat cell, and it's ready to be used 
if a stress occurs. Well, that's great if stress occurs, you know, every couple of months. But when it's every minute of every day that the officer's on duty, and it's not that the officer's exposed to danger every minute of every day, it's that the officer is exposed to potential danger every minute of every day. A cop's world is a question mark. Every event is an unknown situation. And the officer survives that unknown situation by viewing it and always deciding on the worst case scenario. The cop knocks on the door and steps to the left or the right. Not because something's probably going to happen, but because something's possibly going to happen. So while the officer's on duty, they're in that elevated level of alertness. But then when they get off duty, the body homeostatically drops them into the parasympathetic state a depressive type state. And here the officer starts becoming sedentary. The officer disengages. But at the same time, that officer has been infusing glucose into the fat cell. And this is the march that the officer is starting towards type 2 diabetes, towards stroke, towards premature death syndromes. And we can prevent those. It's, it's so simple to prevent them by just a minimal investment in mandatory exercise for police officers. But we ignore, we ignore this in the field of law enforcement. Now, it's, it, what's a paradox in this field is some states that have been very progressive in terms of addressing retirement systems for police have compensated police officers as a presumptive injury for heart disease and stroke. If you have a heart attack or stroke as a police officer in, in what are called heart-lung states, you don't have to show proximate cause of the heart attack. It's just you're a police officer, you had a heart attack, it's a presumptive injury. The job caused the heart attack. That's valid, that's accurate to that point. But there's still no emphasis on preventing the heart attack. And the evidence shows it's a minimal amount. The Center for Disease Control says 150 minutes a week, which is a, approximately 22 minutes a day. And we can reduce the major killers of police between 60 and 70 percent. And yet we don't we don't do that. We 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 have, you know, there's Dr. Glockenspiel's office. If you have stress, you can go see him. Well, the culture of policing is such that, that's a pretty courageous step for a lot of cops. That's why peer support has been so effective with cops, cops helping cops. But it still ignores the whole benefit, the whole benefit of exercise. If I were made king for the day, every cop, every cop would finish every shift, mandatory, not, 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 it wouldn't be voluntary because they would, cops aren't gonna wanna do this. It'd be mandatory. They would debrief with their field supervisor, then they would all head into the gym and they would have 22 minutes of moderate exercise, then they would go home. And I'm convinced if we did that, we would lower this homeostatic swing, this pendulous swing, so we would lower the depression symptoms. And if we lowered the depression symptoms, I believe we would address the suicide numbers. But we're still doing the same old, same old that we've done for 40 years in policing and we're not seeing the, the effect. And that, that's not in any way meant to disparage the tremendous effort because there's lots and lots of suicides that did not occur because there's good clinicians who have brought cops back from the brink. But there's still so much more we can do with a simple 
very inexpensive intervention called exercise. And it, the, the research now is just growing to such a point it can't be ignored any longer. You said that 22, the 22, um, 22 minutes a day, and it is about 20, it's either 22 to 25 minutes or 30 minutes can fight depression up to 22% or 25%. I don't know if I read that from you or if I read that from somewhere, but that just clicked in my brain. Well, the Center for Disease Control talks about the impact of it on the reduction of type 2 diabetes. And, um, you know, and they talk about the reduction. When someone's into that field where, where this metabolic syndrome has occurred, we tend to wait in the United States until they're symptomatic. They, the, the physicians will use an A1C measurement. And then that's, that means the disease is already present. The disease is and then they write a prescription to treat the disease where the group in Reno has developed a series of blood panel for testing in police officers and firefighters where they can predict type two diabetes 15 years in advance and wow. put the person on a, a road and a remedy for, for treatment and prevention of the disease. Um, and, and we can no longer, there's, there's two, there's two events that go unaddressed in policing and they are the critical signs that a police officer's life is not working. One is incremental weight gain, and the second is sleep impairment. And we know 40% of cops meet the, the standards of obesity. 83% of cops report inadequate sleep. You know, it's, it requires a minimum of 49 hours a week of sleep in order to function. That's roughly seven hours a night. 83% of police officers report they do not receive that. Yeah. Now, we, we can talk about this in terms of health for the police officer, but in this era where we're having the police officers been the, become the pinatas and everybody's complaining about police, well, if you want, if you want to retrain the police, let's, let's bring it on. Let's, every, every cop has time to exercise mandatory on duty. But we also have training in sleep management. When you look at reaction time studies of a police officer versus a civilian, and I don't mean the studies that the, the, where they'll, they'll show a, a police scenario, a cop versus the civilian on a shoot, don't shoot scenario. And the cop always wins in those video scenarios because they're not really studying reaction time and judgment. What they're studying is knowledge of police procedures. But when you put a cop into a reaction time study that is not biased by knowledge of the police field, the police officer scores errors between six and 800% more frequently than the civilian does, strictly because of sleep shortage. Uh, we, you know, NASA requires for astronauts that they have the capacity to sleep for eight uninterrupted hours. That's one of the major tests for selection to go into the astronaut training programs. Is, is the measurement, the capacity to go to sleep quickly when they have to during their sleep phase. And the reason for that, NASA says, is they cannot afford a suboptimal decision. Well, cops daily have to go into situations and make critical decisions. And tragically, some of them become suboptimal decisions. And we're, we, we tend to blame the cop. We, we, look, we don't ever look at the system. A cop's in a bad shooting, and the first thing they want to do is look at look at their 
score on the range or look at their firearms training. Nobody ever says, let, let me look at how much training this cop has had in sleep management. How many hours has this police officer and their life partner undergone training at the academy on maintenance of health and wellness? We, do, we don't talk about that. We take young, physically fit men and women, and then we just destroy them biologically. And they have psychological symptoms. But we're also having reduced life expectancy. We're having astronomically high rates of diseases that we can turn back. But it takes just a minimal amount of investment, and we're, and we're not doing it. Every so often, as I mentioned, we'll have groups such as your own that, that take it upon themselves to self-initiate. But, 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 but when you look at other movements that have changed the police wellness field, that's how critical incident stress started. A paramedic in Maryland, after the Air Florida disaster in, in the Potomac River, thought this is such a traumatic event. And, and then Jeff Mitchell pretty much started the, the critical incidents stress management movement, which is mainstream in the United States today. Mm -hmm. Well, I'd like to think at some point, mandatory physical fitness will be mainstream for first responders. It's, it's not a luxury. You will finish your shift, it'll be part of your union contract, and you will be in the gym, then from there you will go back to your family. And at that point, we'll start reducing issues like lost families, domestic violence, substance abuse. I'm, I'm totally, I totally believe that. If, if I may, may add um, to what you're saying, and I, I uh, um, not my, not, not my, my uh, intelligence in quotes is telling me to agree with everything you said, but certainly my experience um, in, in my field, uh, which includes um, uh, right after 9-11, I joined the, the Rockland County, that's where I am, uh, in New York, uh, the Rockland County Critical Incident Team. Um, and uh, I had a pretty good idea uh, from working in municipal counseling services for many years, um, what, uh, what law enforcement personnel deal with, um, what fire personnel, uh, EMS personnel, which I think very often it, it kind of gets, uh, uh, gets lost in the, in the, in the, in the background, uh, uh, but are dealing with, with, uh, very similar levels of uh, of that hyped up stress vigilance uh, in terms of what are we going to be called to next? Uh, how many how, how many bodies or how many body parts or like very often uh, uh, called to a situation where, of course, uh, police have already been involved. Uh, there can be a, a you know a, a hostage situation, a fight, or you know everybody begin begins to go under threat. Um, but in 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 terms of that uh, the critical incident approach, I just wanted to comment on that for a minute. Um, to be a member, we had to be trained uh, a couple weekends of what was called basic training, uh, and then going out in the field and you know practicing. Uh, and um, <clears throat> among the things that uh, were confirmed with, with for me um, was the the overall um, the overall reception of critical incident debriefing. 
uh, uh, and there there was a slight difference uh, between the, the three organizations that I talked about in terms of law enforcement, uh, fire, and EMS. Um, and certainly in law enforcement, uh, when you get to the point with, uh, you know, um, getting, getting past, you know, can, can you tell me what happened to um, let's talk about it or would you like to talk about it? Um, pretty much 99% of the time, uh, law enforcement people did not want to talk about it, did not want to talk about it to us, did not want to talk. My sense was uh, that uh, we're not talking about it among themselves. Um, what, what, what I uh, perceived was uh, part, of, part of the image itself coming into play, um, uh, where uh, our law enforcement personnel almost have to, in, in, a, in a milieu, in a, in a system, uh, in a fellowship, um, show this fearlessness. Uh, and, you know, well, yeah, we, you know, it's happened a million times before, so it'll happen again. It's okay. I'm okay. Uh, I don't need any help. Uh, there's a, a macho aspect, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, having the information that you just shared, and I can't wait to watch uh, this, this video a whole bunch of times so I can really take notes. Uh, because um, the lack of understanding and the lack of education um, in the general public um, about law enforcement personnel um, in the in the world we live in today in the United States, uh, what I saw this summer was what I expected, but also uh, the upfront, uh, you know social response to law enforcement as not only um, not, not, not only, you know, uh, uh, not helping for many, many reasons, um, but also the cause of a lot of problems. Um, and I'm not talking about what what has happened in, in you know, in arrests uh, or in the process of an arrest. Um, but I'm talking about uh, the political aspect that, that uh, I mean, we live in a world today where everything is politicized. Like, I mean, it, it uh, as a therapist, it, it like really, really creates a lot of fear in me at times for, you know, for what is happening and what's going to happen to younger generations that are that are growing up in this kind of world. Well, where, I, 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 I'd like to add to what you're saying, and that's it. We, we're not only are things being politicalized, they're, they're, they're being done by spineless politicians. And I, I can't think of, of a better city <laughs> to, to look at than your area of New York City. I mean, you, you would have to be blind to not have seen the major role the New York City Police Department played in making that one of the, the safest and most functional cities in the world absolutely and then turning around and going in the totally opposite direction those mm -hmm. are times new york city averaged 2300 deaths per year it, it was huge 2300 people per year died of homicide in new york city mm -hmm. and with with the input of commissioner william bratton and the changing of the delivery services of the of the new york 
police department and conceptualizing issues, they reduced that to a little over 300 homicides a year. Yes. 2,000 people a year did not die of homicide. In, this is in one city in, yeah. in the United States, and they maintained yeah. those statistics for basically 20 years. That means there were 40,000 people did not die in New York City of homicide. And yet the spineless politicians do not stand up and address that issue. And we, we, we look at the same, the same spinelessness is occurring when, when we look at the whole concept of, I, I call it the hijacking of mental health in police. Mm-hmm. When the data is clearly there that, that we can preserve police officers and firefighters Yes. Now, fi- firefighters would be slightly different because th- th- there's an element sure. of time. A police officer doesn't have the luxury of staying in the police station for the most part and going, just waiting there until a bell rings and going out Definitely. to the hall. Definitely. Now, Eating, sleeping, hanging and, out. And, and so the police officer is, is a solitary profession, whereas, yes. whereas firefighting is a, um, is a group dynamic. Nobody are better team players than firefighters. Firefighters mm-hmm. are the best team players in the world. Cops are the worst team players in the world. The cops get pissed off and take their ball and want to go home. And because in order to survive as a cop, all those attributes, uh, Joe, that you just mentioned, macho, self-contained, fearless, those are the traits I want in a cop when you're going into a situation. You're walking into a bar with a bunch of bikers that are gonna kick your ass. I don't want somebody going in there that can't hold their own, contain themselves, and, and, and look the bad guy in the eye fearlessly and put him in handcuffs. However, those are emotional traits that are specific to that context. Yes. Then I want that yes, police that officer. Context. That's that right. Context. Absolutely. When the police officer gets off duty, and drops into that depressive type state off duty that we don't. And their magic chair. Exactly right. That's when they (laughs) stop doing those other skill sets. That's when they stop being the little league coach and they stop being the weightlifter and they stop being the fly fisherman. You know, when, when you, when you've been around a really long time, you look at some wonderful leaders that have popped in into the field of law enforcement, brilliant men, uh, and, and women, but in the early years, they're, they're, because of the gender bias, they're primarily uh, men. I, I look at William Bratton and, and his brilliance in decision-making for the yes. NYPD. But I also yes. look back at Daryl Gates at the LAPD. These are men that, that it, were revered by, the, by, these, their, by their agencies. They, 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 the, the thousands of police officers at LAPD came out to a city council meeting and basically told the politicians to leave their chief alone. But this was a man who started the drug abuse resistance education program, yes, DARE yes, program. Yes. But he started that DARE program, not just as a, as a drug redu- re- reduction program, but in order to let his cops, you had to have 19 years on, on the street in order to be a DARE officer. And it was the, a, designed to show the cops that the average kid was a good kid, that the yes. skill sets they learned on the street were not skill sets to view the world through. And when we let our cops drop into that depressive state off duty and that I used to syndrome and that magic chair comes into place, that's when our cops stops doing all those things where they can function normally. 
Now you add on top of this some more biology. You know, uh, I, I'm going to ask you something, Joe, because you seem to be about the same age cohort as I am. Uh, can you remember? I'm 71. I'm a, I'm a proud, youthful 71-year-old okay, person. Okay, well, we're, we're the same age then, sir. So let me ask <laughs> Not you. too far behind. <laughs> yeah. Now, Joe, can you can you tell me where you were when President Kennedy was shot? Absolutely. 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 It's, it's interesting you're referencing that because uh, for some reason, the last couple of days, that's come up in my mind. Well, now, uh, why, why can you remember that? That's that's how many? Fifty four years ago. I, I, I can remember it for many reasons. Um, for, first of all, I had never experienced we. But, you know, I, I within myself uh, as a young 13 year old, um, lived it lived in an environment and in a culture um, in from my 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 ethnic family to American culture. My dad was a World War II veteran also uh, was in the landing of Normandy, uh, the Battle of the Bulge, uh, the Ardennes, uh, liberation of Paris. Uh, and then after uh, Berlin was uh, liberated, uh, he and a bunch of his uh, fellow fellow troops uh, walked into what they thought was a work camp and it was Buchenwald. Uh, concentration camp. I had those stories growing up. I met, and I, you had those stories, but your father had those neurochemical reactions. So to, to, for the, every day of his life, he could bring those memories back in full color, just like you can bring back Com completely what happened at 9-11. And that's, that's neurology. The hippocampus kicks out different physiological responses, different neurotransmitters. Now, this is a normal response to traumatic event. Yes. Uh, I can tell you exactly where I was when I heard of 9-11. I can tell you exactly where I was when I heard of, of uh, President Kennedy was shot, specifically. Oh, Actually, me too. Specifically. I can even remember but, who but, I was but with. The cop, but the cop can also tell you exactly where he was the first time they had a gun sh shoved in their face or the yes. first time they saw a dead body. Or, and these, these are biological responses that have huge psychological consequences. Now, it's time we get in front of that and we start teaching resiliency skills to our cops, not denial. And, you know, I was called one night to a to a multi-fatal car accident. And it was up on the, on the Navajo Indian Reservation in mm. uh, northeastern Arizona. I'm, I'm sorry, the Apache Reservation. And there were several officers there, all all Native American officers. And I was brought in as basically a, a, a white guy from the city to come in to talk to these uh, Native American officers. And I was really a fish out of water. And uh, I got them in to do the classic debriefing. And I said, OK, what, what are you guys going to do about this? And everyone's very quiet, which is part of their respectful culture in terms of speaking. And one sure. of the, the officers says, he goes, I, I'm, I'm very traditional. He goes, I'm, I'm going to go back to my village and have one of the elders do a sweat for me. Yes. Okay, I went to the next person. What, what are you going to do? And he says, uh, I'm kind of traditional, but I was raised a Catholic. He said, I, I, I'm going to go to confession tonight with the priest. I said, OK. And I go to the next guy, and he's got on designer sunglasses, Native American. 
uh, cop and he goes, I'm not real traditional. I'm not real Catholic. He goes, but I, I see a Gestalt therapist down in Scottsdale. I'm going to go down and see them. So even within one cultural context, there's so many different approaches to that. One of the things Absolutely. we did after that was we, we trained a bunch of peer support Native American elders to do critical incident intervention and uh, taught them to take the, the premises of their culture Cultures have always had debriefings after trauma. Uh, it, each culture does it differently. And, and we taught them about first responder trauma response. But you know, when, when I look at this whole field right now, I think we're getting it right, except for the component of physical exercise. That's what mm -hmm. we're, we're totally missing. I will go to stress conferences. There'll be couple of hundred psychologists and clinical social workers and chaplains there, but there'll not be a single physical fitness coordinator. Uh, I'll ask, I'll look at and review the mental health programs of police departments. And I'll say, well, we know exercise is the most effective and efficient way to treat depression, yet there's nothing in your curriculum here that mandates that for your staff. Um, and, and, you know, I, one of professionally, I, I move between three three countries: the United States, Canada, and Australia. And of those three countries, our policing procedures are pretty similar. The training is pretty similar. Um, you know, we we because of our firearms possessions have have higher rates of firearms death, but. Um, Pretty much a cop in Australia and a cop in the U.S. and Canada pretty much do, do the same job, except there's an entirely different response to stress in each of these in each of these countries. If you become a cop in, for example, Victoria, uh, around Melbourne, Australia, you, you're going to start your job with eight or nine weeks vacation per year. Uh, I imagine if you started in New York, you're probably getting two weeks vacation per year. Uh, I'm guessing. They're starting with nine weeks vacation. Ten days. Uh, how, how many? Ten days, and it yeah, takes you five and a half years to get to 25 days. Okay. And so they're starting day one with nine weeks vacation. You, you know. Um, 27 if, days. Sorry. That's a top, top five and a half years gets you 27 days of vacation. That's insanity. Okay. That's insanity. Yeah, if, if, if I am a professor at the local state college, and because all of the stress of teaching freshman psychology, after about six years, I'll get a sabbatical. And I could take a year to go off and study in another scholarly environment or go write a book, which is great that that professor needs to recharge his or her batteries. So, But after about six years, I'll get a break to go recharge my batteries. But I become a cop. And I can expect that I'm going to be out on the street answering calls, working fatals, going to man with gun calls, and I'm going to do this for 30 years and everything's going to be fine. Well, that kind of insanity has to stop. And we're going to have to have leaders, both in, in the management perspective and in co collective bargaining units, that actually take this seriously. And it's, it's no longer just lip service. It's legitimately, we, we don't take street survival uh casually if you're a cop you you pride yourself on your street survival skills on your officer safety skills well we, we have to start putting the same emphasis on emotional survival skills 
We can't hire these young men and women who are physically fit, idealistic, and committed. And then when they're five years, have angry, cynical, depressed people who, who physically are in a shadow of their former self and wonder why that's happening. Well, we know why it's happening because we're on addressing the issue. Um, you know, and, and this, this will impact, just like COVID has impacted, it will impact people of color at higher rates because of the, the impact physiologically in terms of propensities towards certain diseases like type two diabetes. I, I was at a large city in, um, on the East Coast, police department that was predominantly African-American. And they came up to me and they said, well, what you're telling us is interesting, but we all have type two diabetes and our doctor says there's nothing we can do about it because it's genetic. So I said, well, I said, there is a genetic component, obviously, but you know what you should do with your doctor? What? Get a new doctor. I said, roll your sleeves up, roll your sleeves up. And they all rolled their sleeves up and I rolled my sleeve up and we put them into a, um, a, a circle. I said, whose arm is whiter? And they looked at me like I was insane. And they said, well, your arm is whiter. Of course it is. My arm's whiter because I'm the world's whitest white guy. If you're any whiter than me, you're called clear. And the reason for that <laughs> is genetics because my family comes from Ireland where the capacity to withstand sun is not a significant issue. You don't have to because there's no sun there. But my family moved us to the Mexican border in my childhood. Now, let me tell you, Irish skin did not evolve to live on the Mexican border. So I am at a, an extremely high rate of premature death because of skin cancer, because of exposure to the sun. Now, I'm not going to passively just sit by and take that risk factor and say, well, it's just genetics. It's just the way it is. No, I will wear sunscreen. I will wear long sleeve shirts. I wear a big broad brimmed Western hat because I want to survive those environmental threats. Well, with our police officers, we put you into an elevated level of alertness all day long. We have to show you what's happening physiologically. We have to explain to you why trauma occurs. It's a normal response to an abnormal situation. And yet we don't do any of this stuff. We passively just sit back and we wait until that police officer shows symptoms of PTSD. Then we provide them clinical intervention. Very good, legitimate clinical intervention. I'm really happy that we have, have that intervention there. But very, very often what you're looking at is an, an officer that does not have the knowledge, the skills, or the foundation. I, you know, I see the same thing happening now with all the, the, the civil unrest and the anti-police action. I'll see police officers across the United States in physical altercations, and I'm looking at a, at a 28-year-old obese police officer who if they had to run 20 yards and they had to sustain ground fighting for, for more than 30 seconds, they couldn't do it. They're not physically able to do the job. Well, that's the same issue that sleep deprivation and a half a second to make a life and death decision, they can't do that if we're ignoring the physical dimensions of policing, which we are, are ignoring. Right. Those yeah. physical dimensions are bringing on the psychological sequelae, and that's where we have depression, and the depression tragically leads to suicide. And trauma just accelerates it. It puts it on steroids with the trauma.
We also, we, we also, from, from my, in, in my opinion, um, have not yet. I mean, I hope, I hope uh, there is, uh, there's a shift in consciousness um, about, well, a simple one, first of all, that we're all human. Um, and secondly, in terms of, of specifically uh, when we're thinking of law enforcement, um, there isn't a, there doesn't seem to be a, a, a real activated and, and advocated and uh, uh, even legislated uh, movement to do a lot of the things that, that you're suggesting. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I'm with you in terms of um, with, with anyone I see in that, that is traumatized or is, is battling addiction. Uh, um, or, you know, getting in the deep water of recovery. Um, it is mind, body, spirit. You know, it, it's not just, you know, uh, you know, let, let's, let's uh, play antidepressant bingo. You know, um, you live in a real human body. Um, but there, there doesn't seem to be a solid social consciousness uh, of... Um, being part of law enforcement um, in terms of advocating and helping getting all this information to law enforcement personnel and and to superiors and in, into into uh, you know in, into the academies uh, so that and that, that would that would involve some some major systemic change. Well, it would um, make it systemic change. To the point of where, where, you know, all this information is taught before, or at least the person is exposed to it before they go out. Well, you know, I think there are states that have implemented change, I, and I, mm -hmm. I think they've done it pragmatically. And done, I'll, I'll, I'll look at Nevada, um, and it's, it's a long way from perfect in what's happening there. But what they established empirically was when they lose a police officer, to premature retirement because of a heart disease, heart disease or stroke. That costs the taxpayers of Nevada on the average $1 million. That's, that's what right. takes the top out of the game, not just with lost training, it, it, in terms of now you're, they're probably gonna medically keep that police officer alive for decades and decades to come on a full tax-free retirement. But that's about a million dollar expenditure they established the group out of Reno that I've given reference to earlier. Well, if it costs a million dollars to treat the after effects of a heart attack, what does it cost to prevent the heart attack? Which right. is nothing, which right. is absolutely nothing to speak yes. of. It, you, you, you just have to put the effort where it's at. I see sure. departments right now that, that are spending large and lar large amounts of money on mental health programs. And I, I, I ask what their penetration rate is, meaning what percentage of your personnel at your department actually actually uh, utilize the service. Mm -hmm. I'll get numbers like 3%, 5%. Uh, that's, a, that's a great program. That's a great program. Uh, sure. What about the other 94% of your personnel that didn't utilize that service? Um, and then we hear, we hear a lot of talk about stigma. I noticed in this 
the, the stigma of seeking help, the stigma of see, seeking help. Now, that's, there's legitimacy to that. There's no doubt about that. But, but one of the things that I find is that when you look at suicides, many of those officers have sought help. Many of them have tried to talk to somebody. And, and, and it's really good if the person has, um, has cultural competencies. Now, we have some very, very good men and clinicians who work with the, the, the culture of policing. But we often have people sometimes outside that culture who bring in very explicit, not even implicit, but explicit biases against police. And the police officer can be compelled to go talk to that doctor or that therapist. Yeah, yeah, and, sure. and, and I'm I'm thinking, well, we need to move in front of that where it's absolutely the, the police psychologist is a part of the police team, just like the armorer is and the person in terms of fleet maintenance is. We spend more money per year maintaining our patrol vehicles than we do maintaining our police officers. And it doesn't take a lot of money, but it takes putting it in the right place. And it, it, it's... I and agree. You, I, and you I, see, I, I but totally what, agree. What I was astounded at is when this is happening, and it's happening successfully, it's not growing out of departmental decisions. It's growing out of a few people who will start a program, will get a podcast going on, and will we'll start a CrossFit group. And, and we, we have to take that seriously. We, we, we really have to look at this, these issues. Um, Absolutely. And the, the, you know, the I, therapeutic I, benefits of exercise are insurmountable, just insurmountable. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I believe in it enough to even do it myself. Yeah. Uh, I have to, I want to apologize to you. Um, I have a 12 o'clock uh, patient coming in. Um, sure. So I, I have to sign off. But um, once again, I, I sincerely, it, it's, it's been an honor to, to well, talk. Keep, to keep up the good work, Joseph. Okay. Take care now. You too. Well, I, old I, guys got to stick together. Uh, we do. We absolutely do. <laughs> and very, very uh, th thanks again. Okay. Uh, we're creating this group uh, and uh, we're going to carry on. Amen. Good and, deal. Uh, happy holidays. Thank happy you, Joseph. Holidays. Yeah. Merry Christmas. Yes. Uh, take care. Take care. Do Dr. Yes. Gilmartin, I wanted to um, go back to that conversation because uh, we, there's a question that kept brought up in our responder talk that we, that I run part of the program every Sunday night at seven. Um, and we have for all first responders in the family of, and that's, I mean, I got cops from Texas, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey coming in the family of, I run that Wednesday too. Uh, Sunday night is our topic meeting and a speaker meeting. Wednesday is like a check-in grounding meeting. And uh, Joseph is a big, he works that with me. I'm a recovery coach through New York state of alcohol and addiction, but our whole entire, first off, I want to go back before to talk about the program. Um, if I was in the academy, right? If you look at the NFL, you look at the NBA, right? Their combine test and all their stuff they do, it's not a mile and a half run. It's not 20, it's not 40 sit-ups. In police world, when are you ever going to run a mile and a half? I would do something like hardcore sprints that's, into that's hardcore, I gave you a car. <laughs> hard, hardcore conditioning and all of that type of stuff, short bursts of a test instead yeah. of mile and a half. Because I'll be honest, not, no one likes to run 
running, you know, that you ever heard that term running sucks after the academy, people are happy. They never have to run again, right? It's that short burst of high intensity workouts in the academy that that needs to change where you sprint a hundred yards, then you have to, you know, maybe pretend to uh, roll around with someone, do some kettlebell swing, something different like that to really mimic, um, chasing a perpetrator then the physical aspect and then cuffing yes. someone because everyone knows even handcuffing a 16 year old girl by yourself or a 16 year old high school male or something is not easy and it's not and it's not easy at all well you're t you're talking now uh frank about specific physical skill sets that right. the person has to have and absolutely they they they, they have to have the physical skill set of of short bursts of ground fighting. And when I was referring to was the therapeutic benefit of uh, protracted exercise for the reduction of depression and the alleviation of anxiety. Um, the right. absolutely you, you just like we have but to like how you said you were king for the day. That's what I was having the academy oh. is to change up that course. Because when you're talking about there's a thing also a study called three 10 minute walks a day, three 10 minute walks a day at a brisk pace will help fight diabetes cardiovascular, mm -hmm. uh, endorphin, serotonin, all that good stuff. And you're asking someone three 10 minute walks a day, not, and the studies show that that is more powerful than the 30 minute walk continuously. And, and you're, you're increasing the people's activity levels. You know, right. it, human beings are not meant to have adrenaline combined with sedentary lifestyle. You, your adrenaline is a fuel and that fuel needs to be utilized. And, you know, we would not have evolved through evolution if we didn't have adrenaline. We, we needed it to kind of avoid the, the predators, the saber-toothed tigers they always talk about, fight or flight, absolutely. But you can't remain in the fight or flight syndrome for the entire day. And that's what we're asking cops to do. And we wonder why we have, have this depressive type response after, after the, their, their work day is done. It's in the bottom of that roller coaster that our cops stop talking to their life partners. They stop going yep. to church. They stop exercising. And if we know those things, which which we do know, we need to intervene in them. You know, there's a, uh, I have a friend who's a well-known um, risk manager, Gordon Graham. He does a lot of training with police around the, around the world. And he always says, if it's predictable, it's preventable. Well, we can predict these things. We can predict that cops are going to become type two diabetic. We can predict that they're going to gain weight. We can predict that they're going to have sleep disorders, but we also can prevent those. But but we're not. It, we're we're. Um, and that's what's going to lead that, you to that's my. That's to what's going to lead you to my next question is, well, so for myself and uh, how the rest responders program started is, working out before in 2018 I was major depressive disorder and alcohol use disorder. I was already a cop for three years, right? Before that, powerlifting, college football, working out, eating healthy. But what was I doing? I was drinking instead of talking about it. Mm -hmm. I flipped it around. Instead of drinking, now I hit 15 months sober. I've been doing the responder talk groups, checking in with people, um, personally going to AA meetings, but also having the responder talk, talking to all the first responders. So I said, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a normal guy that grew up in New York. I said, if this works for me and it can work for my father, who's also a firefighter, he just hit a year sober. Why can't it work for anybody else? So rough for responders through open gym every Saturday that I run paying for gym memberships of first responders in New York, New Jersey, Rhode Island, having a, uh, 
giving out nutrition plans because people don't understand the nutrition part of the value of how much it can help depression, how much it can really, you know, instead of gaining, losing weight and putting on muscle and what it really does, what food does more than just looking good and the fuel and what it does to your brain and talking about your problems and getting through things and just checking in with all the first responders. That's what our whole program is, is all about. And we have the responder talk every Wednesday and Sunday, the open gym every Sunday. We do a gym membership giveaway and they're not gym membership to Planet Fitness. They are gym membership to strength and conditioning gyms, CrossFit gyms with classes, being around other people, learning from other people, being in that group setting. And mm-hmm. we do a workout. Uh, we've done four workouts already of 228 reps for the 228 police officers that lost their life to suicide in 2019. So we able to remember those officers that this stuff, the the department or whoever's department, any department out there, doesn't just make a video and all of a sudden in a week it's gone. We do yeah. the workout that's about 25 minutes, 30 minutes of partner workout. You go, I go, and then I speak. Joseph speaks and a, few, a buddy of mine, Angel, who was in the military, he fell off of a helicopter in 2018, 2017, said he'll never be able to walk again by himself, like unassisted. He's benching almost 500 pounds walking and by himself, right? So if he would have listened to the doctor, right, what would have happened? So we do all that. And um, the question that, you know, the program that we, that I started in March, the Reps for Responders, and the question we've had in a responder talk is like, what, what does the job, like, when is the job going to? When is the job police, because uh, we got, you know, Texas Ranger, right? a Texas Ranger in our group. We've got people in, in Jersey, detective, really great people. When is the job, uh, like, what what are they going to do to see this? Do you know what I mean? Because like we talked about working out, you know, in my mind too, if I was king for the day, 30 minutes every day, instead of uh, four to 12s in New York City, they end at like 23, 23, 30, 23, 20, right? It's like 2,300. Instead of, oh, man, I hope that family job doesn't come over. I hope that gun run doesn't come over. And pre-thinking that, let them end 30 minutes early, end on a good note, and then work out. Or when is the job going to have every six months just a talk with a clinician instead of when you get jammed up or you say, hey, for instance, for example, I have a drinking problem. And then it becomes a whole entire, you know, process like that. When is that going to happen? And we talked about, and you brought it up in this, in, in the conversation before is it's a small groups like rest for responders and the hundreds of other small groups out there throughout the nation until hopefully the job. And I think we've talked about, it comes down to money, but when well, is the job you know, is going to implement this stuff? That's, it's not rocket science. Do you know well, what I mean? I'm going to tell you, the job is never going to do that. And and uh, if, if you're waiting for magic, that's the reality, right? That's the truth. Well, we have to well take- it doesn't have to be that way. I, I think if if I were, if there was one population that I would use my emphasis on, it would be collective bargaining units. Collective bargaining units have to look at at the wellness of the brother and sister members beyond just how many dollar bills. That's important. How many dollar bills are in the pay envelope every two weeks? But we have to look at the bigger picture. As soon as a chief of police starts discussing issues for the benefit of police officers in today's politicalized world, instantly there's a new chief of police because we we have had we have people. The microphone has been seized temporarily by activists. If I'm living in New York City, you know, the, the last thing I want to do is defund the police because I want to be able to walk to my hotel room without getting hit with a baseball bat. You know, and I don't think that's such an outrageous expectation 
that our streets will be safe, that they'll be like they were a few years ago. Um, but and that's not going to come from chiefs because as soon as chiefs assert themselves, they're gone. I, I look at the I look at what's going on out in Portland, Oregon, and it's you know, I don't know how many chiefs of police they have cycled through in the last four years in, in Portland, Oregon. I, I, it must be closing in a dozen. I don't know, because every time you pick up the newspaper, there's a new chief because p cops have become political pawns. And one of the things we have to look at is the, the stability factor tends to be the police associations. And for a long time, I, 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 my bias is that their mantra was just to do political battle with management versus looking out for the benefits of, of their membership. When I travel to Australia, they have very, very effective collective bargaining units in Australia. The most powerful entities for law enforcement is not management in Australia, it's, it's the unions, the associations. And they put the benefit of their officers first and they've come up with some very innovative programs that use their leverage politically to benefit cops. And I, I wish uh, the Americans would, would look at the Australian model because I think our cops we, we would not only improve the quality of life of our police officers, would improve the quality of policing services to our communities. And it's a win-win situation. It's not a win-lose situation. Can you say they start with nine weeks of vacation or something like that? Well, yes. It, 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 it's it, unbelievable. Now, it, it, well, one of the reasons they can do that is because in uh, the country of Australia, which is, you know, land mass is huge. Right but there's maybe 25 million people, but there's only like six, possibly seven law enforcement agencies, police departments in the whole country, oh, because wow. it's unlike the model we use in the United States. I, I live in a, a moderate sized city here in Tucson, and I think we have maybe eight police departments in this one city. So in order to get in Australia to get you get six or eight people in a room, you can come up with the best practices in the world and you just have to have six or eight people on board and you've changed the entire culture. You know, I'll, I'll go to chiefs of police conferences in states like Texas and there'll be hundreds and hundreds of chiefs of police in there. And and so it, it the, the cohesiveness, I think, is going to have to come from the bottom up. But even if the job isn't going to change, even if, even if I work for the, the biggest idiot in the world, I can still get off work and I can take care of myself tonight. I can have the power be, that we have. I, yeah. You know, and, 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 that, and that just means we have to understand the the effectiveness of um, of exercise. And I'm a real advocate for that. I'm not anti counseling by any means. I, it's well, we have wonderful counseling services. But if I'm an angry, sleep deprived, cynical cop. I'm probably not going to go see the doc, but I might get with my buddy and go in and start, you know, getting on the treadmill or pumping some iron or, or riding my bike. And I think it's it's going to be like like you say, we, we have to have certain skills that the job demands. The job, like you say, doesn't demand um, running a marathon. There's no, no cop on earth is going to run a marathon uh, in, in part of if they do, unless they're in secret service or something. But but they do have to understand that depression and anxiety can be reduced by by, I imagine, by so much. It, it really uh, can. And it, it saved it, my life. And I said, I never want anyone to go through what I had to go through because I made those mistakes. Let's start this program. And I'll be honest with you. I've, I've gained, I am 180 pounds. When I went through my stuff, I was, I went from 185 to 165 because I stopped eating. 
Then when I went on medication um, and I went to 215, I started working out hard again. I'm back to 180, mentally stronger, physically stronger. It just takes a, a little work to put in. But the the high that you say from working out and feeling good and the energy levels, right, that it also increases. Once you work out for the day, your energy overall is going to increase your situational awareness. I mean, I think I can hear better. I can my professional my, my uh, professional okay. vision is 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 better you're just more alert like you want to get close to superhero like a punisher with the skull and all those cops that they put on there this is it this this is the key to feeling like a superhero is to work out four to five times a week eat healthy and go to work you know well, you know when we look at in the going back to the clinical realm though if you look at the rates of morbid obesity in law enforcement, where we look at police officers who at the police academy were 175 pounds of solid muscle, now they've gained 100 pounds. And, and that, they've gained that 100 pounds, not due to gluttony, they've gained that 100 pounds in response to stress. You know, I, I always like to talk about uh, the hibernation response. Prior to a bear entering hibernation every fall, the bear gets fat. The bear doesn't get fat because the bear is overeating. The bear gets fat because the body's dumping a, dumping a huge amount of cortisol. The liver releases blood glucose. The bear grabs that blood glucose and puts it into the fat cells. And that's what the bear will eat all winter long, live off of all winter long. If a bear, and a bear will do that, a bear is twice as fat at the end of October, as the bear is in the beginning of October, even if the bear gets nothing to eat. Our cops get fat. They, they get really fat. And when we joke about, like I mentioned before, about donuts. No, it, it's, it's called adrenaline. Adrenaline will get you fat because getting fat is the superior biological response. The inferior biological response is staying thin. The superior biological response is getting fat. Because if, we if our ancestors were not fat, they wouldn't have lived through the ice age. They wouldn't have lived through the famines because fat people have ruled the world. Here's the problem. We have the exact same biological response our ancestors had, but we don't have a famine. We don't have an ice age. Uh, the bear, the reason the bear hibernates all winter isn't because they, they don't like hockey or they don't ski. They, they hibernate because there's no food in the winter. And if the bear didn't get fat, he would starve to death and die. We no longer face those seasonal, those seasonal challenges, but our body does the exact same response. That's why we'll have seasonal affective disorder and people will become depressed in the winter. Depression, time. Right? Yeah. At seven o'clock right, in yeah. December, 7 p.m. in December, people are kind of tired and they're getting ready to call it a night and they're slowing down. Seven o'clock in the summer when it's bright and it's sunny, you're jumping on your bike and you're going for a ride. And we have to explain this physiological response that human beings are not meant to work at night. They're, human beings are meant to be at sea level, to have one gravitational pull, one G-force, and to stay awake during light and go to sleep in the dark. That's what they're meant to do. And cops don't get to do that. Cops are out in inclement weather, night and day, and we don't explain to them how to keep their the and, physiology balanced. And those and I don't those midnight cops should have another course of really what happens to them when they're working midnights. That there is a sleep study that if you let's say you sleep eight hours, 
but the sleep is not the same as going to sleep on the, 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 the human clock of 10 to 11 at night compared to falling asleep at two or three at night, that eight hours of going to sleep at 10 and waking up in the morning at seven or eight, I'm going to sleep at two in the morning and waking up at 10 is not going to be the same eight hours of sleep. The, it, and it's midnight cops that. should have another training of really what's happening to their body when they're working midnights. And that's and not communities, out there. Communities have to be invested in this because you're asking a police officer to make a decision in, in a fraction of a second, in minimal light, in a life and death event. And and that we ignore the physiology of decision-making. Sleep is one of the biggest components to decision-making. And nobody makes decisions like cops have to make decisions. You know, there'll, there'll be a court hearing and the attorneys will argue over whether it, the search was legal. And they'll be doing that at three o'clock in the afternoon after they've taken it under advisement and the judge will take it under advisement. And the 26 year old cop had to make the decision in half a second. And, and yet we don't talk about decision-making and, and it's um, the lack of the lack of leaders stepping up and having the backbone to support police. To me, I find one of the most depressing episodes of experiences of our time right now, they, they need to be getting championed. Not not thrown under the bus. Champion on their journey. And I actually I have a question for you. It's a little it's gonna be a scenario question. I'm gonna see what you how you would play it out. But um I also want to bring up that we talked about you look at uh, NYPD ESU, right? Um the SWAT team, uh Green Berets, Navy SEALs, they have training consistently of you need to pass it their physical fitness standards. When you're a cop and you pass the academy, all you need to do is qualify the rank for the range twice a year. There is no more physical fitness standards at all. And why they don't implement that at least once a year or every two years, it kind of just is a mind blown, um, you know, one there's day police, of the week. You know what I mean? Police departments in this country that I'll talk to police officers that haven't been to the range in five years. Or they haven't when been, was the last time they stepped into the gym or picked up a weight or went for a walk? Or, or you know, I think about. they would if they knew the benefit of it and they had leadership. Right. I don't fault those cops. They're struggling to stay alive. They're struggling. Right. To and do you get older, you get families, you get everything, everything that's going on now. Th th there's no fault at all. And like you said, people don't know. I didn't know that all this stuff about alcohol does this to the body until it, it was too late. You know what I mean? For me. Well, well it's, it's clearly not too late because you've taken a bad situation. Right. You've turned it around and I, doing I appreciate it. I beneficial appreciate with it. You know, okay, so until I hit rock bottom and this is a scenario. Thank you for correcting my, my verbiage. Um, when I hit rock bottom, <clears throat> so let's just say you're chief of the Gil Martin Police Department. I'm Officer Frank. I don't have, uh, I've been a great cop for three years, good reports, good everything, never got jammed up, don't have any CCRBs, right? Giving you a scenario here. I come to you and say, Chief, Chief Kevin, Gil Martin Police Department, um, Officer Frank here. Um, I, I'm taking on a lot of stress, uh, you know, I, I don't have a suicidal plan, but I'm getting suicidal ideation. What should the department or what would you do as, and now this cop obviously needs to get help, but is he gonna be punishable um, if he gets better? Is it a lot of cops, they don't ask for this help because they know there's a difference between, if you have that situation, I believe your gun and shield be taken away because of whatever happens. But if you do get into a little, Let's say you get into an off-duty drinking incident and you're not an alcoholic, but it just the one time you went out and it happened, you get your gun and shield taken away. But is there a way to let these cops know, listen, 
you're going to get better. You'll be okay. You get through this and you'll become a better person and you'll go back on patrol. What, well, how, well, do you, how do you address that situation? When, when I become king for the day, okay, um, and, I, and you're the Gilmartin uh, Police Department, <laughs> uh, that, that problem would never come to my desk because it would never get past the sergeant because the sergeant would be trained and have the expectation that that sergeant would look out for his or her men or women, that that sergeant would be perceptive and would create a, would create a leadership perspective. And that sergeant would be the strategic point of entry, that they, that sergeant would know what the services are and would reach out and say, hey, Officer Frank, uh, you know, you, you look like you're a little under the weather here. What's going on, buddy? Let's grab a cup of coffee. And it would probably never even get to the lieutenant level because we would have it handled at the lowest possible level and the, the cultures change that way. You know, it's um, or when organizations do that, they they start pushing decision making down the chain of command, not up the chain of command, not where we have people say, well, you know, I'm just doing this because the boss. Is, no, the, the, we have leaders and leaders. You can't have leadership unless you have ethical followership. And those are men and women who want membership in that organization. And they're proud to be a member of that organization. And they celebrate the traditions of that organization. And they, they go forward uh, celebrating those traditions. And, you know, um, I look at, 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 at the organization you're, you're in. What a rich tradition the New York City Police Department has for how many generations of cops that are proud to be cops at NYPD who's fathers and grandfathers were were there i have i went four, back for a reason i left and went back because i loved i i loved it i have a significant number of my own family members that are that are nypd uh officers uh, i find that same tradition in chicago and in in uh boston and in san francisco well, and yet my American... grandfathers were uh nypd cops in the original three four because before they did the split of the three four and the three three precincts so yeah well and we need to celebrate that you know when you look at organizations that celebrate their traditions um you 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 i'm going to be biased i'm going to talk about the marine corps the marine corps they wear the, the the same uniform today, basically, with some minor modification that they, they've worn for 100 years, 100 plus years. Uh, there's a reason for that. The, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, those constables earn, earn the, their uniforms at, at Depot, at Regina, Saskatchewan. It's not just issued to them. They've earned it. And, and there's pride in those organizations. And I think management across the board misses that perspective. They, they just... They, they, they're miscelebrating the traditions. But one of the traditions we need to infuse is, is, is the, the taking care of our personnel and, and looking at uh, the, 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 what they, the role they play in the team. And so as you asked about what Chief Gilmartin would do, hopefully he would create a situation where the sergeants would address that issue. And if the sergeants didn't, the lieutenants would, would say, why didn't you address that issue? There's, there's, there's vicarious accountability up and down the food chain. And, and those right now, we just throw the trained. cop under the bus. Those sergeants and, would be trained in that specific. Every single sergeant and lieutenant yeah. would have that own type of training module that you would create of, if this situation happens, not just, oh, you'll be okay. You got to get better type of deal. Or no, stop the, drink, the Nile, just stop drinking. Denial doesn't work. Just denial doesn't work. You know, it was... we. There was a time that um, in the United States, and, and I'm looking at this again from a very long 
long time. Uh, there was a time when I became uh, a young person right out of the police academy that the firearms training was so archaic, it was marksmanship training. It was, I, I, I think it was five rounds, six, six rounds in two minutes from 25 meters. That's what, that was firearms training. Six rounds, two minutes from 25 meters, if I'm not mistaken. It was just the most insane thing that I, I had ever heard of. It was marksmanship. And somebody would take an average of 15 seconds per shot. <laughs> and yet the realities are police shootings were occurring under 10 seconds. Right. Um, <laughs> and the time the officer engages till it's done is in a matter of seconds, not minutes. And, and then somewhere in the 1970s, firearms training started becoming serious. Then an incident, a tragic incident occurred out with the California Highway Patrol, the Newhall incident. And, and that raised the awareness of we have to train as to what our job is. Then firearms training became realistic. Then officer safety training became realistic. You know, um, we've had 30 years of declining felony deaths in policing because we have taken the job seriously. Officers take officer safety very seriously. But at the same time, we have declining felony death rates with that increasing suicide rates because there's a cost to practicing officer safety. It's not, being a cop is not a casual experience. You know, all these people that talk about they're going to replace police officers with social workers, good luck, okay? Because all you're gonna do is produce that same mindset in the social worker. Yeah. Uh, they, they did, in 1968, the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act uh, pushed this. After, after the, the, the riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago, they talked about reforming police and raising educational levels of police and the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration was formed. You know, these, these are all things that have been, trails have been ridden before. Uh, we're not reinventing the wheel, but unfortunately, a lot of our leaders are reinventing the wheel because they, they don't know what the real problem actually is. And you have to preserve a police officer. You can have the best selection in the world, but you have to preserve that person. It's, not, it's a maintenance question. And we can't keep breaking cops and hoping they make it to their 20 or 25, pull the pin and retire. Well, I, I, when I talk to groups of cops, I'll say, you know, my goal for you, my goal for you is to the same goal I have. My goal personally is to bankrupt the state of Arizona. I want to bankrupt them. Uh, I, want, <laughs> I want to have their last penny. Uh, and I have no will. I, I love the state of Arizona. But they owe me because I came and I did my job and I worked and I get a police retirement check every month. And I, I tell the cops, I said, I want to be getting that check when I'm 115 years of age and I'm riding my Harley over to San Diego to judge a bikini contest, I want the check in the mail because I earned it and I want them to pay me. Now, the best investment is a police retirement because the cops are not gonna take care of themselves. They're going to die prematurely of diseases that are prevented. And as soon as the cop is dead, in many states, you, you, now you're only paying what? maybe 60, 70% of the retirement to the surviving member. And, and then pretty soon they're gonna be dead. And so, hey, that's a great investment. Uh, 
the, the realities are I want police retirements to in, enhance, but I want those cops dying longer at older ages than the average person if because you Google, they're in better shape when we hire them. If you Google, and I'm glad you brought that up. A lot of people don't know this. And when I tell people, they kind of get a little shook. If you Google what's the average age of a police officer, there's a study in 2013 that says 57. Then I found another one that says 66. So you think about 57 and 66 and uh, the retirement age is 62 and a half, I think, where I'm at, 63. But why is that? That's because a lot more majority of them aren't going to make it to 70 and they're not going to have to pay them that much longer. And I wish more people wouldn't would realize that. You see, I don't I don't think it's conspiratorial on the government's part, right. but I right. certainly it's think how it's it is naive yeah. on the cops part. You know, I, I see some cop who's who's telling me that, oh, you know, I got 17 more years and I'm the hell out of here. Then it's KMA time and I'm I'm going to Florida and I'm going to play golf every day and I'm going to Montana and I'm going to fly fish. I, I want you to go to Montana and fly fish, but I want you to be physically able to do that. And at the rate you're going right. now, son, you're not going to be physically able to do that. And, and we have to get you taking both. care of yourself. Yeah. Right. Not to get we you don't want you going to Florida drinking your life away after you retire, which a lot of people, like you said, the hypervigilance, the, the one you and Joe are talking, the, the post-traumatic stress and the stresses. A lot of guys and girls don't know what to do with themselves when they retire. You know, I, um, I would teach, uh, I have a circuit of classes that I, I teach around the U.S. and many academies will bring me back year after year. And, and uh, one is down on the Gulf Coast of Florida. I go to I teach at a police department, usually about five days a year. And I get up every morning from my hotel and I, I walk over to this restaurant and I sit in the uh, in this restaurant and I'm eating breakfast. And uh, inevitably at the table next to me is a bunch of retired NYPD officers. They, they all retired and they moved to this community in Florida. And they're, they're anywhere from five to eight of them get there every morning. And, uh, and they've been there for years. And, and the, all they do is they sit and they bitch about what happened when they were on the <laughs> and, uh And you know, I've, I've been there enough years that I've, I'm sitting there and I hear the same guys every year. And, and I'm thinking, you know, instead of bitching about what a moron Captain Jones was, in 1992, uh, why the hell aren't you getting on your bicycle and riding on the bike trail here along the Gulf of Mexico? It's a drop dead beautiful day, right. you know. We, you know, and when we start looking at those things, we have to change the culture and, and make cops take care of themselves. And it's a partnership. We we got to have the collective bargaining units doing it. We have to have leadership doing it, and we have to have the individual cop taking responsibility for their wellness. Right. But as opposed, you know, sitting and waiting for the job to change ain't going to happen, you know, and right. it, it, it's kind of you like it's just, gonna be it's like wait, waiting for that that ex-boyfriend or girlfriend to come back, you know, like, wait, yeah, wait, well, wait, wait. And all that time just passes by and you're still the same. You know, it's it, it's you, you talk about any addictions. They're going to use the the the. the the serenity prayer, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept, accept the things, things I cannot, cannot change. change. The courage to change, change the things you can more. and the wisdom to know the difference. Yep. The courage to change the things I can. I can get my ass into the gym tonight and the wisdom to know the difference. And when, when we actually apply that as a philosophy, then we start getting change. And we, we, we've got to help show our cops how to do the toughest job there is to do. And that's that's we demand so much of them. Right. No, thank you so much for bringing up that prayer. That prayer is so powerful. And uh I wish a lot more people would know that and then fully, fully understand it. I say that every day. Um, mm -hmm. It's important. So, 
Dr. Gilmartin, I just want to say thank you so much. Before we wrap up, I got a few more personal questions to ask you to get the listeners to let you to get to know you more about you. Um, what is your favorite movie or two that comes to mind? Oh, God. You know, I, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm being raised out here in the West after uh, coming from New York and of my age, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm an addict of the old Westerns. I really, I'm, I'm, and so many of them are filmed uh, where I live here. So I'll watch a, a cowboy and Indians movie that it's an inane movie from the 1950s or something, but I, I, I recognize the mountain in the background. And I recognize, oh, there's a shopping center where that's, and so I, I, I'll watch the, the Western movies. And then, um, you know, but, uh, and, and I, I'm trying to think of, uh, Forrest Gump, if you're going to ask me about a, a, a movie, that's probably my all-time favorite movie, just about a simple guy doing the right thing and works out right for him because right. he's doing the right thing. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, Forrest yeah. Gump is great. Um, <laughs> if you had one meal to eat for the rest of your life every day, healthy or unhealthy, and you have no, you have no health benefits, uh, like negative, what would you eat? Well, I'm, I'm a Mexican food addict, so <laughs> I'm going to be uh, – It'd be a fist fight between Mexican food and Thai food. It'd be between one of those two. <laughs> you know, maybe one day Mexican food, the next day Thai food. I think those are two cultures yeah. that, that value it, you know. <laughs> but, one, uh, one type of physical activity or workout you like to do every single day. And the, again, there's no, there's no, uh, you know, no soreness, no nothing. You can wake up every day and do it all over again. What would well, you I'm a runner and I like to run marathons. And, um, you know, I, 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 I I run pretty much every day, which I'm not supposed to do, you know. But I, you know, I I you primed your body for that. It got used well, to it, it over time. You can, but still not probably the best exercise right. in the world to do. It's just I love the feeling being done. So I have my course, and it's usually the high point of of a day to get out and knock out four, five, six miles and and get her done. And I, I enjoy doing that. Yeah, that's like David Goggins. You know David Goggins. You ever heard of him? The retired Navy SEAL. Oh, okay, okay, okay. He wrote a book and he runs all the time. And uh, even though he says he's not supposed to, he he runs like those crazy hundred mile marathons and all that crazy stuff. And he yeah, yeah, he's very is, hardcore. I've run a, I've run a lot of marathons, but I've never finished a marathon yeah. when I said, "Geez, I wish I could do a couple more miles." You know, when I cross <laughs> the finish line, that's it. Yeah. you know, that's it. Exactly. So, no. Yeah. One one person to hang out with, dead or alive, to spend. A conversation like this with who are you going to go with oh god one of my brothers i think i i got oh, some good, good nice. brothers I, yeah hitting with them sitting chatting with them yeah if you if you uh that's a great answer if you if you had a time machine and uh we first of all when we had our other other guests on uh it was the past only but then they're like can we go to the future i'm like yeah why not so you come to the, uh new york we hang out i hope i lift up a tarp i say dr gilmartin Here's a time machine, past or future. It could be 20 well, years yeah. ago. It could be 500 years ago. Where are you going? Well, I'll tell you, I'm going to give, I'm going to answer with two. That's who you are right now. I, I, I'll say two. I'd like to be able to go back to a time in Oregon when the rivers were full of salmon and steelhead uh, prior to the dams being built when a fella could go out there and catch fish constantly. Maybe, maybe you know? find some gold or something. Yeah, yeah. No, no, just fishing. And, but, you know, the funny thing is I um, – I say this to people uh, whenever I talk to a New Yorker, uh, a young a young New Yorker such as yourself, I, I tell them what um, 
they're surprised sometimes because, you know, like I mentioned, the early years of my life were spent in the Bronx. And I lived um, on University uh, Avenue, which was is now called MLK. And the about 100 percent. Yeah. Yeah, right, the, yeah, that was right down the street. And uh, 167th, 168th, there was a farm across the street from us called the Browns Hill Farm. And you're right in the middle of the Bronx in the Highbridge community, and there was a, a farm. And as a little boy, I could walk across the street <laughs> and see the farm animals. Uh, and I could look across the Harlem River and see the polo grounds. And I could look the other way and see Yankee Stadium. And, uh, and that wasn't that long ago. That was one lifetime ago. And I'm thinking the change and the intensity of change. And, you know, um, when we talk about time machines, I, I, I think I've, I've always enjoyed history. But and, and like I mentioned, traditions, but I think appreciating where we've been, where we are and the setting goals for where we're going to be. I think we have to have a vision for how how we want police officers to be like. What what what's the service model of policing? And we don't we don't do that just by lip service. We have to have men and women who do a tough job and we have to stop devaluing tough men and women. You know, cops are tough people. That doesn't mean they have to be insensitive and it doesn't mean they have to. Uh, be brutal, but somebody has to stand up there and step between you and the uh, the, the, the person who's threatening you. And, th and that person, in my experience, has been police officers. It hasn't it hasn't been other professions. It's been, and these these people who are who are berating the police constantly. It's often amazing to me, even now, when they find themselves into a a fearful situation, they all hit nine one one and want a cop come there to save them. And I, I think the cops collectively and their unions have to stand up and just say, look, it, we're doing the job. We are the one protecting you. And we're asking for some assistance back to, to, to protect the protectors. Oh, I mean, thank you so much. I'm going to, you know, go after this, go for uh, my workout and soak it all in. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I just really appreciate you uh, coming on the show well, and uh, friend. sharing your strengths, experience and hope with us and your knowledge. And, uh, you know, thank you for everything you've done in your career and uh, what you continue to do. That's what it's well, all about. Thank you. You take care. Keep up the good work. Be safe. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and uh, be safe.